Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. The pawpaw is an incredible, temperate, semi-forgotten fruit. Its existence is a real exception on many levels. It's the only member of a tropical genus to survive this far north and most of the continent. It is nutrient and protein rich beyond most fruit. And pawpaws are exceptionally fragile, pushing them outside of economic distribution. Their skin and flesh is much more easily bruised than that of a banana, making them basically impossible to ship and sell in stores. In turn, this has left pawpaws substantially neglected by commercial and academic research, and most of the work to produce improved varieties has been left to grassroots breeders, sharing their results with each other via fruit growers clubs and informal networks. Jerry Lehman was a leading figure in this emergent process, a committed pawpaw and persimmon grower in Indiana's Wabash Valley who developed dozens of varieties while pioneering new ways to process and enjoy these native fruits. Today, we highlight a lecture he gave at the Overlook a DIY hub here in Bloomington, Indiana. Jerry has since passed away, but his work is being continued by his friends and collaborators, including Mark Hildebrand, who you'll hear later on during the show. Thanks to their work and the efforts of many others across the eastern U.S., there are now diverse options of excellent wild pawpaw stock and improved cultivars to grow. Nobody has succeeded in breeding a durable pawpaw, but perhaps this is a good thing. Instead of a commercial crop, the pawpaw can remain an abundant seasonal fruit contributing to wild richness and the riotous bounty of neighborhood food forests, available for common harvest. In this episode, we try something new by collaborating with the podcast Propaganda by the Seed, hosted by Sol and Aaron in Maine, and two of our own from Partisan Gardens. We start off with a conversation the two shows had about pawpaws, how to grow them, what makes them unique, and their appealing and not so appealing characteristics. Yo, what up? This is Tim, aka Soul from Propaganda by the Seed, which is a podcast about, I don't know, I'd say food forestry and perennial vegetables. Is, is that how you would describe it, Erin? That's maybe too specific. It's like a, a, a podcast about plants and the people who are obsessed with them. Yeah. And we just like to go deep um, in depth on one plant every month with a grower and just kind of whatever, have a big conversation about the plant so that people can walk away from our podcast, know how to work with this plant, how to 
maintain it and how to use it. And then whatever uh, tertiary parts of the conversation are in, of interest, we just, you know, follow those branches as they leaf out and bud into uh, knowledge blossoms. <laughs> <laughs> how, how would y'all describe your podcast? I'm Mia. And I'm Hugh. And we do Partisan Gardens. It's a relatively new radio show and podcast. For us, it's a lot about the relationship of food to the wider world. I would just echo that and say that it's a matter of you know, thinking politically about food, food practices, growing practices, with like a, the intuition that there's something that's really political, both about the antagonisms and the conflicts that develop in food systems and food industries, you know, whether that strikes uh, on the part of people working in food processing or in the agricultural sector or, you know, policy and the sort of, you know, for example, thinking about all the racially coded ways that American uh, government food policy has worked over the past hundred years. Uh, but then there's also something that's really political about the sort of positive end about how people grow food and all the experimentation that's occurring uh, as people secede from industrial food systems and figure out alternatives. And so there's ways to sort of take sides, either on the end of sort of fighting against capitalist control of our food systems, or in the ways that uh, we're trying to break those apart and find niches in which we can immediately begin growing things. My name is Aaron Parker. I am one of the co-hosts with Tim on Propaganda by the Seed. And my sort of regular job is I run Edgewood Nursery, which is a plant nursery here in Falmouth, Maine on occupied Wabanaki territory, where I produce plants and seeds and tubers of many unusual edible and medicinal plants. And I've been really focused on sort of perennial agriculture and sort of permaculture adjacent plants for like 15 to 20 years. And I have a, around 200 species under cultivation, including the pawpaw. I don't know. We all have varying relationships to pawpaws. And so maybe that would be a good way to like start talking about pawpaws is maybe talk about what everyone's personal relationships with it. I'll start. I just read about it and tasted it at Aaron's house and have grown it and you know killed about half of my plants but i'm still in the fight i'm really into sort of like minor fruit crops always trying to grow grow something new so when i first read about pawpaw probably like 18 years ago ish i was really excited and it took me a few years to get some in the ground and the the first time i ever tasted them was at Jonathan Bates and Eric Tonesmeyer's house, the house that's in the book Paradise Lot. And I was kind of blown away by the, the really tropical flavor of, of that temperate fruit. So I planted some as soon as I could. And I've been growing seedlings ever since. In a normal year, I'll grow like a couple hundred seedlings to sell at, at my nursery. So I grew up in rural Indiana and my grandfather in particular was very fond of pawpaws. Um, and we didn't have a lot in the area where I grew up, like, like not in town. Um, in Bloomington, you can find them. We're based in Bloomington, Indiana, and you can find them all over the place. And we have a lot of like urban woods in which pawpaws grow. But in my town, th they weren't really that available. I've only started to like develop an appreciation for the pawpaw taste 
it was, I had to like learn to appreciate it because it was just this strange, I was like, I barely like bananas. Why would I like this strange fruit that my grandfather's always given me? I always really associated pawpaws with foraging and with, you know, things that you come across in the woods. And so when I moved to Bloomington, I started hearing about them. I don't know if you all say this up there, but down here, people call it the Indiana banana, you know, so it comes up all the time, but, you know, I thought of it purely uh, as an understory tree, you know, purely in a wild forage context. And so it was only more recently, uh, five or six years ago, that I started hearing about people planting and growing them. And, you know, we eventually got to meet Jerry Lehman and some of the other folks in the Wabash Valley west of here who, you know, had put decades into breeding them. And I got really inspired, you know, both by the range of flavors they were able to develop through breeding, but also I got really fascinated by the sort of anti-economic character of the fruit. The idea that you can plant these, you can get actually a quite a bit of production density versus some other native fruit you can really grow a lot of pounds of pawpaws and that it's super nutritious, protein and vitamin rich. So in all these ways, it stands up well against any of this sort of totally, you know, orthodox grocery store fruit. And yet it just can't be sold in grocery stores because it, and it can't ever be because it bruises too easily. And so, you know, it has this character that, you know, it's, you know, something you can grow, it's something you can find, it's something you can share, but it cannot be shipped in any sort of mass food system. And that's just a fundamental limit. And I think that's actually a really fertile and productive limit. Yeah, it means you got to share them all immediately. Yeah, that was actually one of the things that I was interested in, like talking to y'all about uh, with the pawpaw is like, you know, why hasn't its flavor been used more in commercial products you know you would think that frozen pawpaw would be a thing and I, I mean i don't have the experience with the fruit to really know why it's not a thing but is there any reason why to y'all that like you can't go to whole foods and get frozen pawpaw in certain ways i think it's a branding thing and i think likening it to a banana is maybe like a mistake it's got a very unique flavor. When you say that it tastes just like something else, I think that that leads people to disappointment. I would agree with that a lot. And I, I feel like in the past maybe five years, a lot of people have been kind of coming around to the pawpaw as a, a food in the sort of national eye. I keep hearing about it on like NPR and stuff. I think there is a small market for frozen pawpaw. A reason that you don't see more pawpaw products, I think, is that the flavor is pretty volatile. So in any sort of processed food context, that really unique pawpaw flavor just kind of evaporates. It's just gone. And then also there's lots of ways that other fruits are sort of prepared for long-term storage, drying and being cooked into things and stuff that is really not suitable to the pawpaw because lots and lots of people have very intense negative reactions to dried and sometimes even cooked pawpaw. So fresh is great. Frozen is really good. Pawpaw custard and stuff like that tends to work really well. But a lot of the ways of processing that work well for other fruit can turn pawpaw into something pretty unpleasant. When you say unpleasant, are you just meaning that the flavor turns or are you talking about like the digestive issues that some people Digestive get? issues like gastrointestinal distress, <laughs> basically. It's not universal, but it's common enough that it would, it would take away from the commercialization of those preparations for sure. Some foods that are difficult to digest 
you know, improve with fermentation. And one of the only stable ways I've heard of people using pawpaws is including them in beer making. And there's a local brewer here has pawpaw beer. And there, I think there's several others scattered around the kind of traditional range, but it's sort of drawing on Appalachian cachet, you know, but yeah, in some way appealing to the same sort of like old timey thing that for better or worse pawpaws get associated with. Definitely. There's kind of three different negative uh, potential things that can happen with pawpaw. One is a very few people are just straight up allergic to it. So if you get a bad reaction from eating a little bit, you should probably just not eat pawpaw. And the first time you eat a pawpaw, you should go easy on it. The second thing is there's something chemically that changes with heating and drying, especially the drying. And it's not well understood, probably because these fruit have never really been commercialized. So, you know, big like laboratory type studies just haven't been done. But something changes about the fruit when it's dried or even sometimes cooked. Um, some people love like pawpaw bread and it works great for some people. And some people get like a really bad stomach ache from eating that. Dried appears to be like the worst thing that you can do. And then the third thing is... There's a chemical in pawpaw and other fruits in that family called anonacin that can, in very large amounts, cause something called atypical Parkinsonism. So basically Parkinson disease-like symptoms. And I think eating the, the pawpaw sort of in season and occasionally, that's highly, highly unlikely. But I would never consider the pawpaw to be like a staple food. So if, if you were like, oh, I love pawpaws, I eat them every day, and then I freeze a whole bunch so I can keep eating them every day, that would probably not be a great idea. They're kind of like ginkgo nuts in that way, where eating ginkgo nuts occasionally is awesome, but it's not a staple because there's, there's something in there that you know is, is fine in moderation, but eat it all the time isn't good for you. So on the one hand, I would love to talk about pawpaws and silvopasture right? And whether another possible solution is adding them to the mix for things that you feed livestock and whether that's a solution to the anonacin problem. And then the other thing is that I know that some people have messed with developing low anonacin varieties. That is one of the things you can breed for. As far as silvopasture, I, I think they could be used in a silvopasture setting, but I, I think their best use is probably as human food. I know pigs like to eat pawpaws. I believe lots of other livestock won't really go for them. And unlike some sort of prime silvopasture trees like mulberry, the foliage of the pawpaw is pretty toxic, which is great from a production standpoint, because once they hit a certain size, almost nothing will browse them. So like deer and stuff tend to stay away from them unless there's nothing else to eat. But I haven't really heard about using pawpaw and still the pasture and whether the animals will just stay away from browsing that or if it could potentially have a negative interaction where the animals in silver pasture will eat and damage the trees and potentially be sickened by the chemical constituents in the leaves. I'll give you my, my sort of standard pitch for growing pawpaws. So at least in northern areas, 
I'm in zone five. I'm at like the northern limit kind of of being able to produce pawpaws. But in northern areas, you really do want to site your pawpaws in full sun. And if you're near the northern limit, also a, a hot microclimate is very helpful. Uh, if you're anywhere in sort of the native range of the pawpaw, full sun is still best, but it's a little less of a imperative. But no matter where you are, you're going to get the best production in the full sun which is somewhat paradoxical because very young pawpaws can actually be killed by direct sunlight. And that's because they're really adapted to be an understory tree in nature. But in those natural stands of pawpaw, you never really see heavy fruit production. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Sometimes there's pollination issues, but also in dense shade under a, a complete canopy, there's just not enough light getting to those trees for them to, to produce heavy crops of fruit. In a cultivated setting, it's nice to be in full sun. Another issue, like I said, pollination. So citing pawpaw trees quite close together at having at least two is good practice. Uh, I usually tell people seven to 12 feet apart is sort of ideal. Um, they could be even closer. They could be five feet apart if you're in a really tight space. Or if they have to be far apart, just know that hand pollination is going to be a thing jumping around back to that sun issue. There's a few ways to provide shade temporarily. One is you can plant your pawpaw seedlings in the shade of a tree that is going to be removed once they're a couple years old and established. You can plant a circle of tall annuals around them that will shade them temporarily. Uh, but really the simplest option is to use a grow tube, like a Blue X grow tube. Uh, or other type of sort of just plastic tube that goes around the seedling and provides shade. Also, it provides like a warmer, more humid climate. Usually after one to two years, the pawpaw will grow out the top of a 24 to 30 inch grow tube. And at that point, they're, they're ready for a full sun. You can remove that tube. If you don't have an easy place to get grow tubes, you can also use a tomato cage with a piece of row cover or other fabric just across the top of it. And that provides plenty of shade. And there's, there's other options too, but one of those should be pretty accessible. So once you get past the first couple years, you may not even be seeing much growth. A lot of people will say like, oh, I planted pawpaws a couple years ago, but they, they haven't done anything. And that's really typical of pawpaws because they are one of the most taproot dominant species I've ever grown. I grow pawpaws from seed. It's a big seed. It takes a long time to pop up. But by the time that seedling breaks the surface, they usually have at least 12 inches of taproot. And I've seen pictures of second year pawpaw seedlings that have a four foot taproot. So the reason your pawpaw seedling isn't growing very quickly is that there's a lot of growth happening underground. And once that taproot hits a certain size, then they really start to grow on the top as well. So don't worry if your tree appears to be sort of limping along, all that energy might just be growing underground. Once your pawpaw starts blooming, which for a seedling usually takes between six and 10 years, depending on how quickly they're growing, you might want to try hand pollination, which all you need is like a little paintbrush or a Q-tip and just watch the flowers, you know, check them kind of once a day. And you'll see that 
the flowers tend to open over a period of a week or two. And when they start shedding pollen, they'll get basically all dusty on the inside. You can collect that pollen and bring it to the other tree because pawpaws aren't pollinated by bees, which are very diligent pollinators. They're pollinated by beetles and flies, which just they don't pollinate as quickly or as easily as bees. A little bit of hand pollination can go along. And each flower that you pollinate tends to turn into a cluster of fruit. So it's a lot less labor intensive than if you were trying to hand pollinate apples or something like that, where each flower becomes a single fruit. It's pollinated by carrion flies, right? Yep. Honestly, I've seen more beetles than flies in mine. But yeah, that purple flower form is, you know, whenever you see that, it's often there to attract flies and beetles rather than wasps and bees. I think the flowers are gorgeous. The smell is, you know, somewhat less appealing, but it's a gorgeous flower. And one bit of pawpaw lore, you know, at least among kind of larger scale growers here, is that if you're having pollination problems at a large scale, you take dumpstered or rotting meat and scatter it throughout the orchard. So I just kind of love that as a way to use unwanted meat and make sure those flies are around to do the work. Absolutely. I forget who told me this, but someone told me that the best place to sight a pawpaw, uh, at least in the north, was in a parking lot next to a dumpster uh, because the parking lot <laughs> provides provides the, uh, the hot microclimate that you need to ripen fruit and the dumpster provides all the pollinators you'll need. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's also like an interesting point to make or to talk about like why that is, because this plant is like the oldest tropical fruit that can be grown up here. It evolved before flowers were pollinated by bees, correct? And so this is like a precursor to that. That's why it's like pollinated by flies on rotting bodies, because that's like the epoch it comes out of. Is that how you all understand it as well? Interesting. I hadn't actually heard that. I know there's lots of twists and turns in its biology and evolution. And yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I don't know very much about its broader genus. I've never tasted the Cherimoya or its other close relatives down in Central America. But I know that in a much more recent part of its history, that what's going on is that it was an isolate in the Ice Age. So it was cut off from its closest relatives. And for that reason, it actually sort of suffers from a genetic bottleneck, that it actually has a much smaller genetic pool than a lot of other species of fruit-bearing trees, because it was only a certain population that survived the Ice Age conditions, but did adapt. And that's one of the source of the oddities, but it's a much more recent source than the sort of really deep history you're talking about. I I picture like dinosaur with flies and pawpaws. Amazing. Um, But there were no humans to pick them. And then also, like, I don't know if you all know anything about like its spread. I think that's interesting too, how it was spread by giant sloths. And, you know, these mega creatures that would eat this big ass food and then take these, you know, spread their feces across the land. You know, there's a bunch of different things that are called pawpaw, and it has some sort of linguistic tie to papaya. Papaya is not, as far as I know, part of the family that it's in. So in that sense, there's a, it's a false cognate but there's some relationship or a set of associations in terms of tropical fruit. But the way that the name is circulated has been very uneven. Having talked to a few various fruit growers from other places in the world, the rest of the world, when they say pawpaw, they mean what we call papaya. 
and you're right, they're not they're not in the same family. There are lots of Anonaceae relatives of pawpaw, including other pawpaw species. Like there's a Simina parviflora that grows in Florida, but I, as far as I know, the fruit is either inedible or just very small and not exciting. So I, I have talked to the occasional person from Central America who, like, when seeing a, a pawpaw, they were like, "Oh, that's like Wanabana, which is an, another name is soursop." There's a lot of similar fruit in the tropics, but like like Tim was saying earlier, this is the only temperate one, and the trees, from like a aesthetic or landscape perspective are really pretty and tropical looking. They have huge leaves that kind of hang down and they have these showy flowers. Yeah. And there's really nothing quite like that that grows up here. And if you look at a detailed range map for pawpaw, it's really, really patchy. And it is generally thought that the current native range is very anthropogenic meaning that indigenous people basically were carrying the seeds of the pawpaw around, planting them. And that, that's kind of what set the native range because their other seed distribution partners died off tens of thousands of years ago with the, the giant sloth and the woolly mammoth. When they do bring back the woolly mammoths, we'll have to really push to get pawpaws in there. <laughs> <laughs> Once they can establish, they're quite resilient trees, partially because of this taproot. You know, if you can get it through that early part, even in a drier climate, you know, they really do stand a chance, even with a fair bit of neglect. I'll mention that the state nursery here in Indiana create a totally different situation. You know, we're trying to figure out whether they're actually kind of accidentally doing a large-scale development program because they do a systematic cull of all their seedling pawpaws. They expect a 50% die-off rate by doing direct planting in full sun, and they just accept killing you know, half of what they're planting, and then they sell you know, very cheaply fully sun-acclimated seedlings. And so you know, it's unclear whether they're sort of actually producing pawpaw over time that will actually just overcome this seedling sun phobia that's very interesting again to the people who are just hearing about pawpaws for the first time they're really easy to grow from seed i've grown a bunch of them from seed and so just to mention that as well that it's like you can just get the seeds on the internet get a bag of them throw them in a pot and uh watch them go or plant them right in the ground yeah i'd, I'd love to go over the seed propagation and pawpaws just because there, there are a few specifics that are important to make it easy. You can email Kentucky State University. They every year give out thousands of free pawpaw seeds from their orchards. They're just the few things that you should know if you're going to grow pawpaws from seed. The first one is the seeds are what's called recalcitrant, which means that if they dry out, the embryo dies. So you want to just be careful to keep them damp. Like if they dry out on the surface, that's no problem, but you wouldn't want to have them like sitting on your windowsill for a week because that would cause them to dry out to the point where they would die. And then the next thing is they need about 100 days of cold stratification to break dormancy. So once you have received them from wherever you got them or picked them out of a pawpaw fruit and cleaned them, 
you want to keep them in the refrigerator or in the root cellar or potentially outside if refrigerator root cellar is not available, you know, 100 days before planting. I tend to plant my pawpaw seeds in April. You could do them earlier than that if you were starting inside. Um, but they take a really long time to come up. So don't give up on them. You know, a lot of seeds, you put them in the ground and they pop up in like a couple weeks, even a couple days with some annuals. But pawpaw seeds often take like a month or more. And that's because they take a while to germinate. And then once they germinate, they're growing a whole lot of taproot before they send up a shoot. And because of that taproot, you also want to if you're going to grow them in a container rather than like a nursery bed, you want something that's at least 12 inches deep. So like a big five gallon nursery pot, you can put a whole bunch in there and get good growth and have lots of room for roots. Another option is a 12 to 15 inch section of four inch PVC pipe. And you can fill that with soil. And ideally you would put that on like hardware cloth, like wire mesh that causes the roots to air prune. So the root will go down, it'll hit the bottom and hook air and then start growing side roots without making the taproot spiral or do anything weird. And then once that plant goes in the ground, it'll have an intact taproot that can really reach far into the ground. If you're in the extreme north of pawpaw range, it's also nice to overwinter your seedlings for one year just to help them be a little bit more hardy before they go out into the harsh weather. Do they actually spread by runner or is it just that they look like it because they you know, tend to get such density of uh, seed drop? They, they definitely do spread by runner. You know, you might also have some seedlings in that cluster of, of suckers underneath. Like I said er, earlier, pollination can be an issue for wild trees. So sometimes in the sort of natural habitat, you'll find big stands of pawpaw, but not much fruit. And often a reason for that one is shade. Another is that whole stand could be 20, 30 trees are all the same organism. So they're all just grown up suckers off the same root system. So just bringing in and planting one seedling near some of those clonal stands can actually help them fruit more. I've also seen a pawpaw that's about 100 years old at the Arnold Arboretum. For decades and decades, they've been mowing around this tree to mow down the suckers. Often when you mow down a sucker, the tree is like, oh, we lost that sucker send up a couple more. So there's like, you know, this super old pawpaw tree and just thousands and thousands of little stubs of root suckers. Because of their taproot, is it impossible to harvest those suckers and transplant them? Nope, not impossible. Not always easy, but it definitely can be done. And I'm going to be experimenting with that this year because some of my trees are starting to send out quite a lot of suckers. And one tree in particular has been like really awesome, uh, like high production tree, ripens early, has great flavor. So I'd love to have natural clones of that tree. And suckers are a very nice way to be able to do that. The biggest thing with digging suckers is having a balance between roots and shoots. So if you have a nice big sucker with lots of leaves on it, 
but only a tiny bit of like actual root, that tree is probably going to die. So if you're digging suckers, it's usually a good idea to cut the top way back. So cut back about 90% of the leaves because those leaves are just going to be constantly transpiring moisture. And if that tree, once it's severed from the mother tree, doesn't have enough roots to replace the water in the tree that's being lost through the leaves, then they tend to wilt and die. So it's as counterintuitive as it is, your transplanted suckers will have a much better chance at surviving and establishing if you cut them back or at very least remove a lot of leaves. You know, one thing that's interesting is uh, to maybe just touch on is, I don't know if y'all think there are any like global warming, um, climate change sort of um, ramifications for pawpaw. I know, Aaron, you feel that way. I would say it's really interesting you know, hearing a little bit about your all's experiences because you're on this northern edge. And so I would love to maybe dig a little bit more into specifically what it means to sort of do zone pushing on pawpaw. We've definitely talked to people who are experimenting with pawpaw at the southern edge of its growing range. So people who are really doing a lot of planting in Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, Texas, and who are still getting really good results, even with total climate instability, heat that, you know, has been worsening over the past years, and also unpredictable chill hours, and they're still getting good production. And so that speaks to it as a resilient crop. And it's not one of the things that I'm second guessing, you know, really committing to here in Indiana, because it's like, if they're holding on and doing well in Florida and Mississippi, then clearly you know, sort of at the heart of the range, this is a resilient crop that there's a lot to say for it. Just in terms of its harvest window, you know, I've heard, you know, the reputation, right, that it, you know, because it ripens really fast, you know, that it, you know, has this problem of just a burst of production. My favorite trees, my favorite unimproved pawpaw trees often get three weeks of production from the first fruit to the end. That seems really impressive to me. And then Jerry and others have put a lot of work or had put a lot of work into developing, you know, not just different tasting pawpaws, but also early season, mid season, late season varieties. And so all of that is another kind of sort of pushing in terms of its ability to sort of produce over a long season window, you know, in a diverse orchard. And that seems really appealing in terms of its actual contribution to sort of resilience, because you're starting to talk about three months, four months of a nutrient rich, nutritious fruit, you know, that's growing really well locally. So those are a few thoughts just about climate change. I have no worries about pawpaws and climate change more I have worries about climate change in general and pawpaws and persimmons are a couple of the species that I'm sort of looking to as climate change insurance. Some of the trees that we have here more traditionally might not be doing so well in 50 years or 100 years with climate change, but I expect that things are like basically only looking brighter for pawpaws and persimmons in my neck of the woods. My name is Mark Hildebrand. I live in Fairbanks, Indiana, on the banks of the Wabash River. I'm 76 years old. My main hobby is a tree farm. I grow trees mainly for erosion control and for wildlife. 
I met Jerry to begin with. He uh, had a persimmon conference. That was his main focus was persimmons. But uh, he also focused on, on pawpaws. But anyway, I don't know, it's probably been 10, 12 years ago, he organized a persimmon conference and took us over to Illinois to a fellow's orchard named Claypool that had some oil money and he bought 10 acres and devoted it to persimmons. So we went over there and uh, had the persimmon conference and then Jerry showed us the different trees and the different characteristics and what's desirable and what's not desirable. Then we went back to Jerry's house, and he, I saw some of his pawpaws, and I got interested. And since I live fairly close, I only live probably 20 miles away from Jerry, I kind of got to be a friend of his, and he taught me how to graft and got me interested in native trees that you can use, uh, that we can grow produce on, that they're pretty much resistant to insects because they're native. And uh, that's how that's how we got started. And Jerry was a very generous man, very knowledgeable, and dedicated his whole life towards the end of his life to uh, growing trees and grafting. He had pecans, he had, he had uh, Carpathian walnuts, and he had been to Russia and, and brought uh, some persimmon wood from Russia, so he had Rossianka and he had Nikita's gift, and he also had some oddball pawpaws that had been bred down south, and he thought that they they were had a chromosome that was uh, somewhat erratic in there, and, and that's, that's some of the uh, stock he used to experiment with and graft his pawpaws. It's in the custard apple family, and it's related to the anonia, and the cherimoya. And I've been down to the Yucatan and been to the farmer's markets and tried both of those. In my opinion, I think the pawpaw is far superior as far as, of course, I don't know that those were cultivated cherimoyas and anonias. They might have just been wild grown, but I think that the pawpaw is um, a lot richer. It's almost cloyingly sweet if you, if you get the right ones. It's, it's related to those, and somehow or another over the millennium, it's migrated north, and it's now native to, they, I think they're native as far north as Michigan. One of the interesting things about pawpaws is uh, the pollination. Many people have a, a farm and they've got a big grove of pawpaws, but they don't have any fruit on their trees. And that's because they travel underground with what they call stolons, and then they'll pop up all around the tree, but they're genetically identical to the mother tree. So that there's no genetic diversity. And even though they have a perfect flower, they're not self-fertile. Now, if you would cut some of those suckers off and graft a different variety on there, then you can get some fruit. And also, the flower is an, like an upside-down little purple umbrella, maybe, you know, inch in diameter at the largest, and the uh, bees do not like the smell of the flowers. They say they're somewhat malodorous. So there's no insects that will pollen them. So I, there's a professor at ISU, Peter Scott, who did some research for me, and he told me what you do is you take a piece of decaying meat and put it in your orchard, and it attracts carrion flies. And then whenever there's a heavy dew or a rain, the carrion flies hide underneath these little purple umbrellas, and they inadvertently pollinate your uh, pawpaws for you. It's somewhat of a dystopic fruit. I mean, it's, it's very unusual uh, in its appearance. It's got large leaves, and it's not a very big tree. I think it would be a very good tree for close shade around your house because the trees don't get that big, and they're never going to fall over and, and damage your house. And plus, they're an attractive tree. I think Thomas Jefferson planted them in Monticello as a, as a landscaping tree because he thought they were so attractive. And they've taken off in Europe. Now, uh, there's a fellow named Cliff England who's uh, got a nursery down in, I believe it's in Kentucky, and he sends seeds all over the world. And that's another interesting thing about the pawpaws. Jerry always thought that they're genetically simple. So if you've got a seed from an apple and planted it, you've got one in 10,000 chances of having a fruit that's somewhat similar to the parent. Whereas with a pawpaw, he thinks there's about a 90% chance that you're going to get a fruit that's similar to the, to the parent. That makes the seeds a lot more valuable because in general, you're going to get a, a, a replica of a good cultivar. He would take a, a toothpick and a Q-tip and he would go out there and take the pollen from one flower, put it on another flower, cover it with a baggie. 
so that nothing else could pollinate. And then he'd know what the parentage was. It was an open pollinator. He'd know what the, the mother tree was, and he'd know who the pollinator for the mother tree was. And then he'd grow that fruit out, plant those seeds, and see what he had. I mean, it's a long-term experiment, you know, eight or ten years at the minimum. And when he died, I have a friend, another friend of mine, Doug Fell, who's also in our club, the Indiana Nut and Fruit Growers Association. Uh, we had some experimental trees uh, in his greenhouse, and Barb, his wife, gave, I took one home and Doug took one home. Looks like this year I'm going to get the, have the fruit for the first time, so I'll be curious to see what the fruit looks like. And I have, Jerry didn't have them labeled, I have no idea what they are. Maybe they're just a, a, a seed from a regular, a normal plant, or maybe there's some sort of an experimental plant, but because there's been some experiments with taking the flowers from the cherimoyas and the anonias and trying to cross-pollinate them with, so you get a hybrid with the, uh, the pawpaw, but I'm not sure how successful that ever was. That Jerry had some like that, and they were a beautiful flower. They were more of a purple flower than they were almost like, oh, magenta. But the fruit was not very spectacular. It was just ordinary fruit. And some of the characteristics that Jerry always bred for, he wanted to have the fruit in close to the central leader so that you don't have a great big fruit on the outside of your branch because it tends to break the branches off. So that's one characteristic you bred for. Of course, you want fewer seeds. The fewer seeds are better because we are not just getting a mouthful of seeds when you ever eat one. Also, of course, flavor. So flavor, seeds, the location of the fruit, and you want a tree that's prolific. You don't want a shy bearer. So you want a tree that's going to, you know, give you plenty of fruit. Jerry was quite a, he won quite a few plaques over at the Pawpaw Festival with his, with his Pawpaws. What he would do is he'd plant them in rows and he'd number the rows, like row 250, row 275, row 300. Those seeds were all planted from trees that he had hand pollinated. And some of his best cultivars, like one is 275-48, and the other one is 250-39. And one is Jerry's Big Girl, and one is Lehman's Delight. And those are actually won the largest pawpaw contest one time myself with one of Jerry's pawpaws that I grafted onto one of my small trees. And it weighed, I think, 26 ounces. Now, have you heard of Richard Owens? Richard Owens is the, uh, the he calls himself Hoosier Pawpaw. And he actually sells pawpaws to the uh, brewery over in Indianapolis. I mean, not in Indianapolis, in Bloomington. All that he can get. So he drives around the country in a van and buys pawpaws and takes them over to the brewery and sells them. And they make a, a sour ale out of the pawpaws, which uh, kind of tastes like sauerkraut juice, but it seems to sell out every year. So it's, a, it's apparently some people like it. You can make smoothies out of them. Like Doug Fell, he extracts the seeds and then he pulps them, freezes the pulp, much like you do with persimmon pulp. And then through the year, he makes, you know, when he makes a smoothie, he'll put some pawpaw pulp in there, and it, you know, gives it not only flavor, but it also gives it quite a bit of body because it's a, it's a real thick, heavy pulp. It's not thin and runny. So you can do that with them. But honestly, I think, in my opinion, it, they don't travel well. They don't keep well. They're, as I say, they're cloyingly sweet. If I eat a half a dozen a year, and my wife eats a half a dozen a year, I mean, they're almost too rich. But there are there are people apparently who really like. We had a, a friend of ours, a Russian doctor, and she just thought they were the best thing ever. So you know, it's it's very subjective, and and just depends on who you are and and what what your tastes are. But I, I to me, they're a little bit over the top as far as sweetness. I'd prefer to grow things that are native to this area. And as I said before, it's almost a dystopic fruit, which intrigues me because it's an eyeball tree. I think people don't know what they are. You mentioned a pawpaw. Most people have never even tried one, especially in the cities. And even in Chicago, there's a, I think it's a restaurant called the Green Dragon. And it's a, kind of a real high-end restaurant. And there's a woman named Oriana. Do you know her? She used to come down to Jerry's and would buy as many pawpaws as she could put in her car, which, you know, would be three or 400 pounds, take them back to Chicago and sell them in the farmer's market for probably, you know, $10 a pound. Because, as they say, they're, they're kind of a real novelty, and most people don't know what they are. And, of course, you know, the grass is always greener. 
So even if you don't know what they are, if they're really odd, people will buy them and try them. But anyway, this Green Dragon had had them on the menu, and in the menu they were listed a thing called pawpaw. It's kind of that uh, nouveau cuisine where they, you know, mix in all kinds of exotic ingredients the chefs do just so they can outdo the other chef. So there, there's, there's, there's some specialty markets like that, and I think they're kind of much bigger on the West Coast than they are in the Midwest, uh, just because it, it's, a, it's a gourmet. It can be considered a gourmet fruit. But it's, I just like them. I'm, I'm, I have a tree farm. I've got about 600 acres, and we've took most of it out of crop production and planted it all in trees. And it's a, it makes a nice understory tree. For, for instance, if you're growing walnuts, you can plant pawpaws underneath the walnuts because they're not affected by the toxins that the walnut put out. And they'll give you a nice dense understory so you don't have trouble with invasive plants like bush honeysuckle and multiflora rose and autumn olive. So I, I use them for that. I, I plant the seeds in my walnut orchards so I don't have trouble with invasives, not as much trouble. And I, and I think they're a beautiful tree, I mean, to look at, I, I, at least in my opinion. I mean, aesthetics are very uh, subjective, but in my opinion, it's a beautiful tree. So that's some of the reasons I, I plant them. We went on several fields. We, if I found an interesting uh, tree farm down in the south, we both went, would go down to, for instance, the Amish people. And actually, Jerry uh, and I got the Amish started grafting down in Montgomery, Indiana. Now they're some of the best grafters, and they do custom grafting. And they, because uh, it's kind of a lost art, grafting. That's one thing our club promotes and teaches. We take people who are interested in learning how to graft trees. And, I mean, if you look in the Bible, they, the uh, people in the Bible used to graft olive trees. So it's something that's been around for thousands of years. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting craft to learn. We, and it's, it, you can take a, for instance, with a persimmon, you have a male and a female. Of course, the male tree doesn't produce any fruit, but you can cut off the male tree and graft on a good cultivar of a female. And now you've got a tree that's going to produce persimmons. And you don't, you only need one male for maybe 20 females to, to pollinate them. And you always put those in the southwest corner of your orchard because that's where the, the wind comes from. So the wind comes and, and they're, they, the bees do pollinate persimmons rather than pawpaws. And finally, we share part of an archived talk Jerry Lehman gave here in Bloomington a few years back. Not originally conceived for the radio, these are just some tidbits from a multi-hour conversation about pawpaws and other native fruits. It's a great glimpse into the world of fruit and nut growing and experimentation. Here's Jerry. Pawpaw is indigenous to the United States only. No place else in the world. And, and with the advent of internet uh, the rest of the world is finding out about pawpaw, and there is great interest worldwide on, on pawpaw. Um, my seeds are selling at far more than what I think they're worth, but I'm taking the money uh, over, <laughs> overseas. <laughs> Advantage of the world interest, the North American pawpaw is high in antioxidants. Uh, the pawpaw is very nutritious. Uh, there's demand for the fruit and the products. Consumers are looking for great tasting food, which requires little or no preparation. Consumers are seeking new or unfamiliar flavors to add creativity to the meals and increased emphasis on locally and regionally grown produce. Those are all things that are helping the pawpaw. Pawpaw contains protein, which no other fruit does. You might miss the big one there. Pardon? You might have missed the big one there. Okay. Unless you haven't got the, the taxol that's in them used for ovarian cancer. Oh, yeah. Jerry McLaughlin from Purdue University did research and, and patented um, chemical in pawpaws that does reduce tumors. It, it does fight cancer. But the problem is 
<clears throat> that, that chemical, can't think of the name of it, can't be synthesized in the laboratory. The only way to get it is to extract it from the plant, like Don was saying, and the chemical companies aren't in the business of extracting chemicals from plants. If they can't synthesize it in the laboratory, they're not interested in it. Nutrition, this is, look at the mineral content, amino acids. Look at the amino acids, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven out of, I think, nine, pawpaw, banana, apple, and orange. Uh, pawpaw has the greatest amount. Apple doesn't contain any. The thing that is, to me, is, is curious, but apple, look how popular apple is. You buy them and they say an apple a day keeps the doctor away, but when you compare it to pawpaw, just as virtually nothing more than flavor and, and juice and fiber. And, and, uh, and the pawpaw contains nearly as many antioxidants as cranberry, pomegranate, and plum. Fruit bearing can begin as early as five years. A seven-year-old tree can produce 22 pounds of fruit and as high as 88 pounds. That would have to be under unusual conditions. Culture. Pawpaws must be shaded the first year. There are some exceptions, but I always say they must be seeded because if I say you should and somebody doesn't, you know. So the safe thing to do is, is to shade them. I've got some planted to where they're in the shade in the afternoon sun, and those I planted from seed and did not shade them and, and they made it. But, they, but the, the theory is that it's the ultraviolet that kills them. Also, they're virtually impossible to transplant. If you go out in the orchard and dig a pawpaw with the idea that you're going to move it, the chances are slim and next to none that you're going to be successful. Having said that, I have transplanted pawpaws in the month of August successfully. But I, again, I don't recommend that. Get potted, either get potted trees or plant them from she, seed and shade them the first year. Pawpaws are not self-compatible. You have to have two different genetically, tre genetic trees planted next to each other for, for uh, pollination. And insects don't pollinate the flower. Uh, I'm sorry, bees don't pollinate the flower. There are some insects that'll pollinate the, uh, the, the, the flowers. And that's why you'll see the recommendations that uh, Kentucky State University recommends eight foot spacing. My trees are five foot and 10 foot. When you said you, they have to be shaded, is that only in the first year or forever? Yeah, well, my experience is only the first year. But if you all first year, you only get six inches of growth. I'd cut ahead and sh I'd yeah. shade it the second year. But if you get seedlings from Indiana State Nursery or get seedlings 12 inches high, you don't have to shade them when you transplant them. Okay. Good question. Now, a question that I'm asked often is, how do you hand pollinate? How do you collect the pollen? I, what I do is, is real simple. Uh, the flowers hang upside down, generally hang upside down, and I just take a small medicine vial and a toothpick and hold the, the vial underneath the flower 
and take the toothpick and rake around. You don't want to break the pistols off because that's where the fruit is and rake around the anthers. Anthers and pollen and all will drop into the, the vial and then just with the, take a Q-tip and, and uh, dab it into there, the pollen and, piss and the anthers will stick to the Q-tip and then take it over to the next tree to the pistols. How can you use uh, uh, pawpaws, ice cream, gelato, and others? But you don't want to use a recipe that requires a lot of cooking because the pawpaw flavor is volatile and heat, it, it evaporates. Now, the older pawpaws, the ones that have turned black, that flavor is not as volatile. And so the bakeries and so on, uh, there are some bakeries that they do prefer the black pawpaw because the flavor carries through. And some people like the flavor of the black pawpaws better than, than the freshly dropped. I don't, but that's other products that uh, you can make with, uh, with pawpaw, uh, pawpaw dressing. But pawpaw beer and pawpaw wine is very good. At the Ohio Pawpaw Festival, they bring pawpaw beer in by the truckload. Uh, paw, uh, pawpaw wine is, is excellent. Questions? Do you know how to grasp? No. You can, I don't. It's easy to do. I can imagine. I don't have. <clears throat> and, and so, what you can do is you take yeah. some of the younger ones and graft different varieties onto it, and I'll then you'll those. have that genetic difference for pollination. But getting them in the full sun, uh, you're going to find there that they do a lot more blooming in the, in the spring. On a pawpaw tree, would you typically try to discourage the clonal growth? Did you all hear the question? He's he's question about clonal growth and what would we what we let do uh, let grow. Uh, the, again, what you should do is graft different varieties onto those shoots. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The pawpaw flower bees do not pollinate. They say that okay, the carrion fly, the flies that live off of dead animals, are good pollinators. That might be, and so they recommend throwing roadkill into the orchard to attract to attract the carry-on flies. I personally am not convinced <coughs> of that. It might attract them to the orchard, but they're going to spend their time on that dead animal, not in the flowers. So the theory is it'll, it'll attract them. But because of this problem, you've got to plant them close together. There are insects that do visit. For example, the ladybug. I've seen many ladybugs uh, in the flowers. Uh, so you plant them close. Kentucky State University recommends eight foot spacing uh, and and that is good. I, I say not over ten feet. Okay, yes? Kind of new to tree planting. So I have some seeds that are papa seeds. Will those, you plant those and they grow? Or? Yeah, yes. Provided that they're stratified. You can't let them dry like you would a pea or a bean. Uh, you must stratify them. You must keep them moist and keep them cool. So, so basically, the, when you get them out of the fruit, fruit, which is where I got them, so then in that moment you have to right clean them, clean them good. I like to store them in sphagnum moss because sphagnum moss is slightly acidic, which helps reduce mold. But it's still a good idea when you've got them in the refrigerator, long about January and February, check them. If there's mold there, just simply wash it off 
put in fresh sphagnum and put them back in the, fr in the, in the, re in the refrigerator. Can't you just plant them right away? Well, I think in terms of when you say planting right away, or planting them in, in a pot indoors to where it's warm, that also is, is iffy. It, it's, best, it's best to stratify them. Most of them typically, they typically, most seeds, fruit seeds, require a minimum amount of stratification before the germ, before the embryo will, will release. So the, it's best to put it in the refrigerator and, and Don is right. You put it in the ground, you're going to have natural predators. You're, that's going to, so put them in the refrigerator. What was that word you said that you put it in? What was that? Sphagnum moss. S-P-H-A-G-N-U-M. It's sphagnum moss grows only in Canada. You can buy it in most places. You can buy it as, in fact, if you buy trees from the state nursery, you're going to get a big bundle of sphagnum moss that the roots are in. So save it. Don't throw it out. Don't let it dry. Keep it moist. After the talk, Jerry gave folks a tour of his growing operation and taught us how to graft pawpaws on some of our own trees. If this episode has you excited about the pawpaw, the 23rd Annual Ohio Pawpaw Festival is tentatively scheduled for September 17th through 19th of this year. Thanks to Propaganda by the Seed, Mark Hildebrand and Jerry Lehman for their contributions to the show, and Lynn Rye for our music. You can hear previous episodes of Partisan Gardens at our new website, partisangardens.org. In upcoming episodes, we will talk to some urban gardeners about their projects, hear about agroecology in California, and learn from striking workers in the food industry. Stay tuned. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org, and we will be in touch.